นโมตัสสะภะวะโตอะหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะวะโตอะหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะวะโตอะหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะOnce again, this evening, have a selection of questions that people have sent in, which I'd like to try and respond to. The first one says, "How can the Buddhist teachings help us to understand the present crisis, especially the fact that so many people are dying around the world, despite all the advantages and benefits of modern medicine and science?" I can understand why uh, people could be surprised at the extent of the crisis, you know, given how phenomenal the achievements of science has been uh, over the last well, century, in particular. And, um, It would be understandable if we settled into an assumption that we weren't going to be challenged the way we are challenged right now. Even though it's the case that through all, throughout all of human history, as human beings have been challenged with wars and famines and pestilence and plague. This is this is normal. For humanity to have to deal with these intense difficulties, however, in recent decades, at least, uh, we've been spared a lot of that uh, unparalleled period of freedom from war and and a lot less famine and pestilence and. And also, for that matter, up until now, plague. But here we are now. We've got the plague. And why is it that science isn't able to handle it better? And what does Buddhist teachings have to say about that? Well, one way of contemplating is to consider how the Buddhist teachings talk about the six elements: earth, air, fire, water, space, and consciousness. And generally speaking, what I think is fair enough to say, most scientists would agree that they don't really understand that last element, consciousness. For the most part, they're dealing with earth, air, fire, water, and space. And in fact, I was recently having a conversation with my good friend, uh, the abbot of our monastery in Italy, Ajahn Chandapalo, and he had been. Reading something or listening to something, or watching something, there was reported on how scientists are now talking about the big problem of consciousness, and 
Well, from a Buddhist perspective, of course, consciousness is not a problem. Consciousness is something to be understood, and truth seekers throughout the, the centuries, throughout the millennia, have been seeking to understand and apply themselves to the task of investigating and, and for some people, coming to understand the nature of consciousness and the dynamic of consciousness. But to a large degree, this is not what science has been paying attention to. They've been paying attention to material concerns. And, and yet the situation we're in now, uh, what we're faced with is a lack of cooperation. And one reason why this crisis is, is so intense is, is the lack of cooperation between regions and, and fear and panic, and where do these issues come from? Mm-hmm. The lack of cooperation or, or fear or anger. There's also now this movement towards believing in conspiracy theories and, and reacting with violence, and where does this anger and fear take place? It takes place in consciousness. And so the dynamic of consciousness, the reality of consciousness, the understanding of consciousness, well, generally speaking, we would consider that as the domain of, of the uh, spirituality. However, there doesn't need to be any conflict between science and spirituality. The fact that in relatively recent times there's appeared to be some conflict between science and spirituality, that's not doesn't have to be the case. I mean, we're all just, hopefully, we're all just interested in reality and So there's a lot I would suggest that science could learn from spirituality and um, the investigations that have been made into the nature of consciousness and how could we adjust our lives so as to live in a way that is more harmonious, more cooperative and potentially free from fear and hatred. Well, it, the teachers, uh, the spiritual teachers, would tell us that it takes it takes wisdom. I'm reminded of something that um, I heard reported when I was living with my teacher, first teacher in Thailand, Nachan Tate, and I didn't hear him say it directly, but somebody was telling me how he had asked the monks that um, if the eye needs a mirror to see itself, how does the heart, or how does consciousness know itself? And apparently none of them had the answer. And he eventually replies that it's wisdom. Wisdom is that aspect of consciousness which is self-reflective. Consciousness can know itself through wisdom. And so the cultivation of wisdom, that's the task. That's what our teachers encourage us. If we want to be free from fear and hatred and confusion... Uh, from from self-obsession and mm, those conditions that lead us to despair, then wisdom is what needs to be cultivated. And you look at the world that we live in, and it's not just this plague which is challenging us right now. I mean, again, something Ajahn Chandapala was mentioning, he had looked up some statistics and he was pointing out how that uh, every year around the world there's 
8 million people die. 8 million people die from smoking. And 80% of those 8 million are like direct smokers. The other 20% apparently are from secondary smoke inhalers. And this is a completely avoidable condition. And yet every year there's 8 million people. And then I looked it up myself, and in this country there's 78,000 people. 78,000 people every year die in this country because of smoking. And so, well, what does that, what does that say about the uh, wisdom of our society? Um, I'm sure all of us realise that over and over again we get fooled by the impulses that we feel assailed by, like fear, uh, like anger. And how do we protect ourselves from being overwhelmed by fear and anger? Well, this is what the Buddha's teachings are instructing us about. When the Buddha was awakened, what he was awakened to was the delusion, the delusion of humanity, the delusion that he himself was suffering from, the stories that he was telling himself, the myths that he was believing in, and here we are 2,600 years later, and still, most of us, most of the time, are still believing in these myths. But these teachings are there to dispel these myths. Like, for instance, the myth of stability, the idea that somehow there is some stability, there's some permanence, there's, like this life is permanent or anything is permanent. Well, the Buddha's insight into instability, or anicca, dispelled that myth, at least in his consciousness. And the myth of satisfactoriness, the idea that somehow conditions, any conditions, physical, emotional, mental, any condition that is somehow going to somehow give us a sense of satisfactoriness is a myth. Any condition that we cling to, any condition at all. And this is not something to believe in, like with the, the truth of instability or anicca, something we can investigate. What is it that's really ultimately stable? What is there that will ultimately give us a sense of satisfactoriness? Anything we cling to produces a sense of disappointment, frustration. And then the third myth, which the Buddha dispelled, was the apparent sense of a solid self and the insight into non-self or anatta. And so asking about what can the Buddhist teachings say about this current predicament, well, what I can say is that we haven't awoken from these myths. We're still busy seeking permanence. We're busy holding on to things as if they're going to give us a sense of security. And then the shock comes when we get sick or eventually we die. It is. It shows up that we're not ready for it. We're not prepared. And, and so it is with a lot of the crisis that is consuming society at the moment. There's a, a lack of preparedness. The, the last five or six decades is probably, I think we could say, is a, once again, unparalleled affluence and opportunity. And what have we used it for? So the wealth that there is around and the opportunity for education. And 
are children in school educated with regards to such things as like the law of impermanence. It doesn't sound like a big deal, but it is a big deal just to educate humanity with this fact and then maybe to educate people with the recognition that they can develop consciousness in ways that makes the mind clearer, like developing collectedness of attention, developing mindfulness, developing the ability to investigate, to ask real questions the right way at the right time so that our attention goes deeper and we can start to understand things. We can start to say, what is it that I'm afraid of? What's all the panic buying about? I'm afraid I'm going to die. Well, if we start to see that for ourselves, well, now we've got an answer to our question. I'm not dead yet. There may be fear, but does that have to be a problem? Does fear have to be a problem? Or if we cultivate consciousness with this collectedness, conventionally referred to as samadhi, or discernment, then if we develop these, or in Buddhism we refer to as the spiritual faculties, sadha, virya, sati, samadhi, panya, faith, energy, mindfulness, collectedness and discernment, if we cultivate these faculties, is there a chance that we might be able to see differently instead of reacting on the basis of the fear that we feel you look at the news and you see some of the leaders and the way that they're behaving and well that's frightening but do we have to be afraid or some of the conduct of certain individuals is really not particularly beautiful to say the least but do we have to be hateful do we have to be defined by these conditioned reactions? We can ask these questions ourselves and then start to investigate them. So with response to this question of what can Buddhist teachings tell us about this crisis that we're faced with right now, well, what it can tell us is that we need to develop consciousness. And we need to find ways of actually using these teachings we receive. We've all heard about anicca, dukkha, anatta, instability, unsatisfactoriness and non-self. We've all heard about these, but do we really pay attention? Well, this situation we find ourselves in now, where uh, for many people are not able to go out very much, and so there's a lack of distraction. Well, one way of viewing that is it's, uh, okay, I'll set some time aside every day to work on consciousness, to work on the, this quality of knowing, this quality of awareness, paying attention to the heart of the matter, instead of just paying to that which arises and ceases in the heart, that which arises and ceases in awareness, you have to pay attention to the quality of awareness itself. Even if that just means like 20 minutes of sitting meditation a day, for most people these days they've got the time to do it. Maybe a lot of the time they don't have the time to do it. But this is an opportunity where they could pay closer attention to it. So it's not the fault of the scientists, it's not anybody's fault. Maybe this is a way of coming to appreciate these teachings that we've been hearing all these years anew, to engage them with a new level of interest, because now we feel challenged. We feel really challenged. This is a, this is a sea change for humanity, and let's 
see if we can learn what we need to learn. So the next question says how to really practice with the reality of our own mortality and that of others. Well, this follows on from what I was just talking about and as much as the fear we have of mortality is really what we're dealing with. How can we deal with the reality of our mortality? Well, we can't deal with the reality of our mortality because we're not dead. Uh, the reality of others' mortality, that's another question. But our own mortality, how do we deal with the reality of that? Well, we, I would suggest we stick with what we know. Mm. What we can know is... Well, one thing we can know is that we don't know when we're going to die. And maybe this current crisis is inviting us to own up to that. And, and if we haven't considered it before, it can be really difficult to own up to that. I, I, if I remember accurately, I think I was about 36 uh, when I, for the first time in my life, I consciously appreciated the fact that I was going to die. Just, I don't know what triggered it, but just one day I was living in Devon at the time, in the Devon Vihara, and one day the thought just arose and that a time will come when I won't be here. And, and what was interesting about that was what a relief that was, how good that felt. Now, some people might think that's grounds for concern. It wasn't a death wish. When I thought about it, what occurred to me is that with the acknowledgement of our own mortality, a lot of energy can be freed up. The energy that was being used to tell lies to ourselves, like the idea that we're not going to die, the idea that we're immortal. Well, of course, in theory, we know that we're not immortal. We don't always behave that way. And it shows up when we feel threatened with our own mortality. In this regard, it might appear strange for people not familiar with the Buddha's teachings. It's a practice that, certainly in the monastery, we're encouraged to reflect on every day, regularly, our own mortality. I'm of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. And that's not because we're you know, mentally disturbed. Well, we might be, but not because we're reflecting on that. The encouragement to reflect on mortality is so that we're not wasting energy on constructing and maintaining these myths of immortality. Just as we tell lies to ourselves about about instability and about satisfactoriness and, and about self. We tell lies to ourselves about our mortality. We, we get around as if we're not going to die and so we feel threatened and fear arises. However, once, as I was saying a minute ago, that as we have the good fortune to have received these teachings, we can cultivate our faculties so that 
Fear doesn't necessarily have to overwhelm us. It can threaten to overwhelm us. The wise thing to do is to prepare ourselves in advance with the skills so that when fear arises, there's a knowing of the fear. There's not a being pulled into the vortex of fear. Yes, there can be fear. Do we have to be afraid? So whether it's the fear is triggered by witnessing somebody else's mortality or the idea of our own mortality, whatever the reaction is, how do we receive it? Certainly we need to be able to receive that fear in the body. If we've lost touch with our bodies, which in a disturbing way our education system tends to condition us, and tends to think we're all mind basically, it's all about the mind and to a large degree anyway and, and we're not encouraged to really live with a, a mindfulness of body. I think physical education in schools is, doesn't get a lot of attention these days and, and outside of school it's, uh, a lot of attention goes into looking at gadgets and spending time online and it's quite understandable that many folk end up losing real connection with their body. Where does fear arise? Well, it might initially arise in the mind, manifests in the body, uh, in our solar plexus. Do we have a frame of reference? Can we meet the fear? Can we receive the fear? Or do we reject it? The deluded ego is an expert at manipulating and controlling and things it doesn't like, it tries to reject automatically. And if we catch ourselves doing that, and anything, not just fear of death, but anything, you know, like somebody maybe comes up with a good idea, and if we automatically reject it and resist it, that's a sign of deluded egoity. The deluded ego loves to control, and when it's things that it doesn't like, it tends to automatically reject. And so when fear arises, particularly around this very tricky subject of death, our own or somebody else's, If we immediately reject it, resist it, well, there's an important lesson in there. We've we've got some training to do. Training in what? Training in mindfulness, training in what I was talking about the other day, in conscious composure, inhibiting our reactions, developing consciousness so that we're able to read what's going on without being lost in it, without being absorbed in it. There's all sorts of activity that's agreeable, the gladness, the joy, the happiness, the gratitude that arises in mind and, and we obviously appreciate it. If we get lost in it, well then, when the opposite happens, when despair, sorrow, fear, worry, aversion arises, we run the risk of getting lost in that. So hence the importance of developing these spiritual factors. Not just the idea that faith is a good thing to have. Not just the idea that energy is a good idea. Not just the idea that mindfulness is good or that collectiveness is a good idea or, or that discernment is a good thing to have. Believing in the five spiritual faculties is no different from having a good recipe but not knowing how to bake anything. You can't 
eat a recipe book. Mm -hmm. The recipe book is there so as to give direction. Well, likewise, the Buddha's teachings on the spiritual faculties are there to show us, pay attention to this quality of heart, this quality of mind that we call faith or trust or confidence, which is, well, what do we think that is? It's not, it's not just like belief, and blind belief, that's something else. That's, that's something to do with what goes on in our head. Faith or confidence, trust. Faith is a capacity to accommodate uncertainty. To accommodate not knowing without collapsing. Mm-hmm. Here we are now at this state of still escalating crisis uh, with this pandemic and the fact is we don't know how it's going to turn out. We like to think that it's going to subside as quick as possible. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. We like to think that the electricity is not going to go out. We like to think that the water is not going to run out. We like to think that there's not going to be social upheaval. Probably, in one part of our minds, we suspect maybe things are not going to turn out good. And we could be very disheartened and despairing about that, particularly if we watch a lot of the news and and uh, subject ourselves to a lot of the fake news, and unreliable news. It's very easy to be despairing. And what is despairing? We're caught up in fear. And why are we caught up in fear? Because we don't have a perspective on it. Fear is an aspect of intelligence. If we weren't afraid, well, we'd subject ourselves to all sorts of heedless influences. You know, I think it was Ajahn Chai used to say that if you're not afraid when you're about to run across the motorway, there's something wrong with you. You want to run across the motorway, you should be afraid. You know, the blood vessels constrict and you've got energy and you can move fast and, and it's dangerous. And fear is an aspect of intelligence. However, what happens when we cling to fear, terror, or anxiety? So once again, our mortality is not something that we know about. Other people's mortality we can witness. The reaction is probably the same. We feel afraid. How do we prepare ourselves to handle that fear realistically? What does, what does Dhamma give us? It gives us these tools in our spiritual toolkit, faith, the capacity to trust, even when it looks like things are otherwise, to honestly own up to the fact that we don't know, to be okay about not knowing. This is the reality. I don't know how long I've got to live. I don't know about the teachings on rebirth, the Buddha's teachings on rebirth, I don't know whether they're true or not. I can't remember my past lives. However, I do have faith in the Buddha's teachings on rebirth. So much that the Buddha said, you can investigate for yourself. This is something I can choose to have faith in. Faith in the law of karma. Like if we don't have faith in the law of karma, maybe we think that there's unwholesome things that we can do and we're going to get away with it. The teachings on karma... So actually, nobody gets away with anything. Any intentional impulse we have will have consequences. And so I can choose to have faith in the law of karma. 
not just the unwholesome things we do, but also the wholesome things we do. You know, does it really matter if I follow this wholesome impulse I have because actually I feel quite lazy and I don't think I want to follow through? Well, if we have faith in the law of karma, we say, well, every wholesome act will have a wholesome result. And it encourages us to act in ways that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise. Faith is a tremendous motivator, as well as being a capacity for accommodating uncertainty. Energy, how do we give rise to energy? How do we appreciate energy when it just turns up? Virya, the second of the spiritual factors, how do we handle energy? Like right now, this shock that has hit the world, a heightened level of energy. Can we expand our field of awareness to embrace, accommodate this energy and use it to enliven us? Owning up to death, the reality of death, actually can be very enlivening. As I was saying, when I, when I owned up to it when I was about 36 years old, it was an energising experience. It was uplifting. Mm. And when such energy comes to it, can we accommodate it? Yeah. Or do we have so much energy that the heart uh, field of awareness automatically contracts and constricts and collapses and then we start behaving in ways that are heedless? And, uh, talking too much, talking heedlessly, uh, thinking too much, thinking heedlessly. Mm. Maybe what we need to do is once again come back to our body-based awareness and just take a deep breath and accommodate all this energy. Mm. And mindfulness, the third of the spiritual faculties, is there to support us in this. Body-based mindfulness. Feel what it feels like to feel I've got too much energy. To feel restless. When we feel restless, we can judge it and contract around that feeling of restlessness or we can take a deep breath and relax and just make the suggestion to the heart, to the mind, to the field of awareness to open, expand, accommodate when we need a degree of mindfulness to do that. So all of these spiritual faculties working together, collectedness, using some of this time that we have to, just as we might be using time to read or to paint or draw or do exercise, we can also put time aside, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, to exercise the discipline of attention so that we collect our attention so that it's steady, still. Not just always darting here and darting there. And Again, this is not something just to believe in, but it's something, it's a teaching that we can take on board and experiment with. And discernment. Mm. When crises like these occur, it throws up questions that we might not really want to listen to. And yet if we've developed the faculty of discernment, then we have an increased ability to receive all the questions that arise, all the doubts. The doubts that arise in our hearts and minds don't have to be a sign of failing. These doubts that arise can be a symptom of this is what we need to learn. 
And if we start aligning ourselves with these questions, instead of resisting these questions and rejecting these questions just because they're unattractive, like, can I handle being at home on my own? Can I handle not being able to work this technology? I don't understand how to install the software on my computer that I want to use, and I haven't got access to the people that used to help me. Can I handle it if the electricity goes out and there's there's no heating? These doubts come into the mind and those questions. If we have developed the faculty of discernment, then we don't have to be threatened by such questions. We can maybe even learn to welcome such questions. I'm not suggesting it's easy, and certainly this current predicament is anything but easy. But let's not assume that these difficult questions that arise in our heart and mind, these doubts, you know, doubts about Buddhism, doubts about our own practice, let's not just assume that because we have doubts that we're somehow failing. Doubts might threaten belief systems, but doubts don't have to threaten faith. Faith and, and questioning can go together, just as energy and collectedness can go together, and mindfulness can oversee the whole thing. So the question of our mortality and the mortality of others, first and foremost, I would encourage paying attention to what we have access to. We don't have access to our own death right now. And if the thought of our death or, or the witnessing of the death of others triggers difficult emotions, let's not miss the opportunity to learn, really learn. How can we meet this? How can we receive this? Instead of being drawn along by deluded egoities, habits of rejecting things that we don't like, how can we engage it in a really constructive way? Once again, I'm not pretending this is easy, but it's the kind of work that maybe humanity needs to do if we're not going to revert back to the complacency that we've rather indulged in over the last few decades. The last few decades, as I was saying, such affluence and opportunity, we could have been developing political structures and economic systems and educational systems that prepared us better for this perfectly, utterly natural circumstance. Plague is perfectly normal. We've had them throughout all of our history, and yet we've been caught somewhat unprepared for it. So another question here which says, frustration and anger at others not sticking to social distancing advice coupled with lack of compassion. So somebody's wants to, um, is asked if I would consider this situation. Well, I think again, it's the same territory we've been discussing. When anger arises or aversion arises, do we have the, do we have what it takes to receive anger? Because somebody else is not 
playing by the rules and mm. acting in ways that we might consider very foolish or selfish and we feel angry or we feel aversion, maybe it's true, maybe that person is being selfish and being very stupid, but when we feel aversion to what we witness, can we receive that? Or does deluded egoity kick in and we reject it? You know, often it's the case that a lot of Buddhists get embarrassed about feeling aversion, as if somehow aversion is a bad thing. Yeah. I often think that, like, if we thought aversion was a bad thing, what we think, what do we feel about our body's immune system? The body's immune system is not, you know, an expression of loving kindness. The body's immune system is handling something that's abusive and invasive. The body's immune system, as far as I'm concerned, is a good metaphor for aversion, saying no to this. That which is ugly, that which is selfish, that which is foolish, that which is mean, that which is narcissistic, is repulsive. And if we feel aversion when we see that which is repulsive, what's wrong with that? If we can feel it, what can be very unhelpful and very difficult is if we cling to the aversion and it becomes hatred. Mm -hmm. As we were saying earlier, the same with fear. Fear is an aspect of intelligence. It can be. If we cling to the fear, we are afraid. If we cling to the aversion, we are hateful, spiteful. Do we have to do that? Well, the Buddha's teaching encourages us to have the faith, the confidence that no, we don't have to do it. It's not an obligation. Though there is something we need to do about it, we need to develop these spiritual faculties, we need to develop that quality of steadiness of attention, alertness to our own questions, and look into what's really going on there. And owning up to what we see. So if what happens is we notice that we don't have compassion for this person who's behaving rather selfishly and foolishly. We own up to that. That's spiritual practice. Uh, a lot of people seem to think that spiritual practice is just feeling good about everything. That's, that's a big mistake. Spiritual practice is being honest about everything. So including being honest about our lack of compassion, our lack of forgiveness, our lack of tolerance. Or well, my case, my lack of equanimity. After all these years of practice, I, I'm still a, a serious beginner when it comes to equanimity. However, if we have some degree of mindfulness and, and restraint, then we, we can own that. So, all right, this is what's happening. And it feels good to own it. And owning it, we're cultivating integrity. In lying about it and judging ourselves, we're compromising integrity. We're torturing ourselves. We don't have a, enough equanimity and enough compassion and enough forgiveness and enough kindness and enough patience and we start judging ourselves. Well, that's like we were chanting the Dhamma Chaka Sutta this evening, the Buddha's teaching on the turning of the wheel of the law and the Buddha talked about the two extremes, one of them being utter gila matana yogo or indulgence in self-mortification. That's what we're doing when... We put this effort into, uh, into spiritual development and what 
shows up is our lack of compassion and then we judge ourselves and give ourselves a very hard time over it, we're actually indulging in self-mortification. And the Buddha very clearly pointed out this, that's a dead end, that's a disaster. The middle way that he was talking about, the Majima Patipata, the middle way is owning how it is here and now. If there's a lack of compassion, lack of forgiveness, and then there's a sense of remorse for that lack of compassion or lack of honesty, sense of remorse arises, we put our hands together in Anjali and we say thank you, thank you for, thank you to awareness for showing us this. Thank you for revealing the truth. That's the truth. If we keep avoiding the truth and trying to be kind, trying to be compassionate, and not owning up to the fact that we're not compassionate, not kind, we've got aversion, and aversion feels like this, if we keep trying to be something that we're not, without really receiving ourselves where we're at, that's like in the Dhammapada, you may be familiar with verse Dhammapada 11 and 12, where, where the Buddha says, mistaking the false for the real and real for the false, you suffer a life of falsity. However, seeing the false as the false, and seeing the real as the real, you abide in the perfectly real. So it's not a case of judging ourselves because we don't have enough compassion. It's learning how to receive all of ourselves in this moment. This is, this is what meditation is. And, uh, again, for many people, they pick up meditation as some sort of a, uh, a struggle to overcome all their difficulties when really they're not going to overcome anything until they receive their difficulties. We can't let go of ourselves until we receive ourselves. And, and yes, once again, it's, it can be very difficult to receive ourselves when what we've got is fear and anxiety and resentment and tendencies to want to blame and judge. However, maybe that's what's called for. And if that is what's called for, if it is what's called for, then we need to find a way of doing it. And so again, coming back to what I was saying before, in this time where we, a lot of people have more opportunity for turning to consciousness and developing consciousness, uh, listening to the Buddha's teachings on faith, energy, mindfulness, collectiveness and discernment, and, and really investing and cultivating these faculties so that when we meet ourselves in a state of indignation and rage and, and, and maybe even hatred, we don't make it worse by rejecting it, we own up to it. And maybe all we find is that we learn to own up to it a little more quickly. Yeah. doesn't mean to say that we're going to suddenly overcome our lack of virtue. It might mean, though, that we own up to it a little more quickly we stay deluded for a, a little less time. Yeah. And one more question this evening, which is, uh, at a time like this, what really matters? pertains to everything else that we've been considering this evening I would say that at a time like this what really matters 
is that we learn what we need to learn. And even if this crisis didn't happen now, it would have happened later, the epidemiologists have been talking about a plague coming sooner or later. It's not uh, if, it's when. So the science has been there. The scientists have been telling us about it for a long time. However, we weren't prepared. We didn't learn what we need to learn in advance of this. We don't, we're not very good at feeling threatened without our hearts contracting, without our awareness collapsing and our being lost in fear. And when we lose ourselves like that, there's so much intensity that we feel we've just got to react. And that often comes out in anger or despair or blaming. However, let's reflect on this opportunity we have to hone down these faculties and work on consciousness itself, work on awareness itself. Not just reading things to fill our heads with more information, paying attention to the heart of the matter, to awareness itself, to knowingness itself, how well can we receive this situation with faith that it's possible. It's possible to grow in purity of awareness, to trust in that. It's possible to grow in clarity, even in the midst of all this chaos, to trust that it's possible to find calm. Not because we're denying the suffering or the chaos. Maybe there's a way of viewing it, a perspective, that means that we don't get lost in it in the same way. And if we don't get lost in it, we benefit, but also there's going to be benefit for others. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.